Welcome to the BCP Propers, a show where we discuss the proper lectionary readings of the 1662 Book of Common Prayer. My name is Stephen Wedgworth. I am the rector of Christ Church here in South Bend, Indiana. We're a member of the Anglican Diocese of the Living Word. So for today's episode, we're going to discuss Epiphany, a feast day which uh, begins a new season after the 12 days of Christmas have come to an end. The next day, always January 6th, no matter what day of the week, is Epiphany, the celebration of uh, the star which reveals the new Christ to the Gentiles particularly through the Magi, or wise men. But as we'll see, there are other elements to Epiphany as well, and what holds them all together is the theme of revelation, or manifesting Christ to the world, especially his divine nature. For today, we'll discuss the Day of Epiphany particularly uh, the proper readings for the Lord's Supper, the communion service, and the morning and evening prayer services. And we'll begin with the collect of the day. O God, who by the leading of a star didst manifest thy only begotten Son to the Gentiles, mercifully grant that we, who know thee now by faith, may after this life have the fruition of thy glorious Godhead, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So we can see here in the Collect the star, so the historical narrative of the wise men, and the emphasis on Gentiles. Uh, the Collect wants us to connect the idea of the three Magi uh, discovering Christ with Revelation going out to the Gentiles. And then it goes on to meditate on that theme of Revelation. We now know God by faith, not by sight, but after this life, upon death, we will be able to see the glorious Godhead. So we will be able to see the deity ourselves through Jesus Christ. So just as the wise men were able to see it through Christ, uh, we will see it through Christ, seeing it now by faith in Christ, but then in heaven we will behold him uh, directly or as he is. So uh, what's historically been known as the beatific vision and it's an interesting idea, seeing that heavenly vision ahead of time, seeing it when you see the infant Christ in the manger, if you're there at that time, or now today, seeing it by faith when we believe in Christ. Now, the proper readings for uh, the communion service uh, are the central ones of the day. Uh, Ephesians 3, 1 through 12 is the epistle, and then the gospel is Matthew 2, uh, the wise men narrative. I'll begin with the epistle. This comes from Ephesians chapter 3. For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles... If ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given to me, to you, ward how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery 
as I wrote afore in few words, whereby ye read ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body, and partakers of his promise in Christ, by the gospel whereof I was made a minister, according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. And then Paul goes on uh, to say that this revelation, which he has now seen, which had been a mystery, is now being revealed to all through his preaching, and that this includes the central message that God created all things by Jesus to the intent that now, under the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, this might be made known by the church. So Paul is saying that this had been partially hidden, that God had done all of this in Jesus, and now this hidden mystery is meant to be revealed by the church. So we can see here a number of themes. Right away at the beginning, the idea of Gentiles being given the mystery. Paul's going to reveal it to them. And then also the fact that they, Gentiles, they are part of that mystery. The fact that they would be brought into the kingdom and the commonwealth of Israel. This had not been known in ages past, at least not fully. And it is now being made known, being revealed by Paul in his preaching. And that finally, all of this is going to come together with us, the church, revealing the fullness of the gospel, the deity of Christ, and how he is both creator and savior, to all things, including things in heaven. This is pretty cool. Epiphany is revealing, making known, making known about heaven and earth and making known to heaven and earth. And so we're going to celebrate Epiphany, and we're going to enact Epiphany by seeing Christ, and that happens through the preaching of the gospel, and then by proclaiming Christ, evangelism. And this Ephesians reading makes known something that is not often talked about, but is incredibly profound, incredibly important. We evangelize on earth by calling men to repentance and salvation, and we also evangelize in heaven by proclaiming the gospel. And we do this especially in corporate worship with angels and archangels and all the powers in heaven. Uh, we cry aloud, right? <laughs> uh, our worship service is a union of heaven and earth, and we should understand ourselves to be in the heavenly places. And so when we worship God in spirit and truth, we are proclaiming the mystery of the gospel to the things in heaven. This is what Paul wants us to know in this epistle. Now the gospel reading, St. Matthew chapter 2, this is the story of the wise men. How they came to Herod and said, where is he born? King of the Jews. 
So emphasis on kingship now. That's going to be a big theme on Epiphany, the celebration of kings. Uh, these wise men, tradition calls them kings. The, the word in the, the Greek text is uh, magi, a variation of magus. Magus is often translated as magician or sorcerer, very bad thing, someone who practices essentially witchcraft or the dark arts. But these are wise men from the East, and we know from uh, secular literature that in Babylon and Persia there was a class of people known as Magi. They were sort of Zoroastrian priests, and this was also the class from which uh, the Persians would draw from for their kings and emperors. So they probably are religious men, a priestly caste, and these magi had been watching the stars looking for a sign from God, probably also having been influenced from the history of the Jews in both Babylon and Persia. Daniel teaching first Nebuchadnezzar, but then Cyrus, uh, and giving revelations about dreams and shakeups in the heavens. So it, it probably is the case that if they aren't full-fledged believers already, they are strongly influenced by the recent history of Israel in their midst. And so these uh, priests of Persia, watching the stars for a sign, and they connect it with the birth of the king of the Jews— and it's probably fair to refer to them as kings, at least in a broad sense. Uh, at the time of the Reformation, this was greatly protested. Calvin said it was ridiculous, and it was an opportunity to really hammer at vain tradition. Um, and it's true that it doesn't call them kings exactly. And yes, it doesn't say that there are three. It says they bring three gifts, but uh, it doesn't say there are three. But the word king, especially kings, plural, uh, that can be in a general sense, in you know, a ruler, magistrate. And if the Persians did draw from the Magi for their magistrates, then I don't think it's an abuse of the term to call them kings, just so long as we know the full history. These are, are religious men who would have a role similar to Daniel, perhaps at the right hand of the king. And so these magi, following this miraculous star, come to Herod, and they want to find the king. And it says, we have come to worship him. And that's significant. Uh, we know that, yes, the Persians worshiped their kings as a deity. So perhaps that's going on, a carnal understanding of things. But the fact is, their worship is going to be received and accepted and sanctified and used to teach us that Jesus is more than any ordinary king, that he is, in fact, divine. And so they go. Now, of course, Herod, he doesn't like this. He, he doesn't want a new king. He, he wants to be the king. So he, he has a plan that he's going to eventually find this king and kill him. In God's providence, uh, the wise men are diverted from this and sent away. This, of course, reminds us of the Feast of the Holy Innocents. So as I said in the previous episode, uh, these holidays are not totally separated or distinct. They interact with one another. So this event actually would be historically prior to Feast of Holy Innocence. But the Lord uh, reveals to the wise men not to trust Herod, that they should go another way. Um, but before that, they go. They find the king, the newborn king, Jesus. 
and they come into the house. Now notice it's not a manger or a stable. They're in a house at this point. They see the young child, so not described as an infant, described as a young child. So some time has passed with Mary, his mother, and they fall down and worshiped him. And they opened their treasures and presented gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold, a gift, obviously, for a king, would, would have actually given the young Jesus and his family some amount of riches. Kind of a curious thing to think about. This could explain how they were able to afford to run to Egypt and could provide for themselves during that time, also then to return home. Uh, this may have also provided something of a extended dowry or insurance coverage for Mary, if the tradition is correct that Joseph died fairly early on. Uh, and this also provides Jesus with some ability to do the ministry he's going to do. You know, he's going to spend time studying. He's going to be a rabbi. He's going to be uh, one who lives off of the contributions of others. So this money probably helped him with that as well. Frankincense. Uh, it's funny how that's become the classic description. Uh, at the time, it would have just been a variety of incense. Uh, Frank's not in the picture yet. But incense, that's meant for worship, isn't it? It's given to God. So tradition uh, has often said that this is a gift to show Jesus' deity. They're contributing an offering as if to a god. Uh, it may also simply be uh, to show that he's going to himself, Jesus, be a sacrifice. And then myrrh, a kind of oil, typically used for anointing and burial. So uh, it shows his mortality and his humanity, but also signifying that he has come ultimately for the purpose of death. And it reminds us of later on when he's anointed by the woman and he says, she has done this to prepare for my death, for my burial. Same sort of idea here. So he's given gold, incense, and myrrh. This is the first major revelation. The wise men seeing that Jesus is the newborn king and that in fact something about him demands worship. They being literally Gentiles, this also is an early incorporation of Gentiles into the new people of God, the Christian church. Them being kings or representative of kings shows how the kings of the nations will bow the knee to the king of Israel. And that topic will take us to the proper readings for morning and evening prayer. Uh, proper reading for morning prayer and uh, for this day of Epiphany begins with Isaiah 60. Starts off that light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Making us think again of the transition from Advent into Christmas and now this star shining light. And it continues to say, The nation shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. So here the selection from Isaiah, given so many years earlier, right? Isaiah's living when Israel's kingdom has not yet fallen, but it's a picture of a more distant future after God returns to his people, after they've been in exile and in darkness. Now he's shining his revelation again. That happens fully in the giving of Christ. And then even the nation shall come in, and their kings shall come. 
A few verses later, it says, the wealth of the nation shall come to you. That's Isaiah 60, verse 5. The wealth, the giving of the gold is part of that. And then contributions to the altar for sacrifice. Foreigners shall build up your walls and kings shall minister to you. So that happens, you know, in a small capacity when Israel comes out of Persia and they're rebuilding the city, uh, rebuilding the walls. Um, but now fully in the coming of Christ and when the nations are brought in, even those, it says, the sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you. That's verse 14. They shall bow down at your feet and call you the city of the Lord. The wise men are from the east. Babylon, Persia, they had afflicted Israel. Now they're bowing down. And Isaiah goes on to talk about how uh, this is symbolic of God's salvation. Ultimately, a picture of his righteousness forever. The sun shall no more go down. Light eternal. This is fulfilled in Christ in his first coming, but then as ultimately we know in uh, the second coming when it's finally manifested on earth forever. Now, the second proper for morning prayers from the New Testament, Luke chapter 3. This is the baptism of Christ. And this is very interesting because in the history of the church, different uh, narratives were central to epiphany, depending on what part of uh, the empire you lived in. And the baptism of Christ was a big epiphany story, particularly in the eastern areas. The various Greek Orthodox churches still make a big deal about the baptism of Christ on epiphany. Uh, many of them have ceremonies where they bless the water, they throw a, a, a cross or something into a, an important body of water near them, and then people actually will dive in to get it. <laughs> uh, in Florida, there was a Greek uh, community, I think it was Tarpon Springs, and this was a big deal. They would all get into the ocean and find the, the cross. Uh, not such a big challenge in Florida in January, but I also lived in Canada, British Columbia, and they, they actually would do similar things there. They jump into the really cold water in January. <laughs> uh, so kind of a funny way to enact this. Uh, it's not part of the Anglican tradition, but it shows you how the baptism of Christ was also a big epiphany story. And so the BCP, uh, it chooses to have the Magi and the, the star leading to Christ as the central gospel reading for the communion service. But it does have the baptism here in morning prayer. And so if you're doing both morning prayer and communion, you would get that uh, connection. The baptism of Christ is truly an epiphany because this is when we see his divine nature. In fact, we see the whole Trinity. Uh, some of the only places where you see all of the Trinity kind of in the same place in a way that you could sort of imagine, uh, it's, it's the baptism scene of Christ. The voice from heaven, God the Father, uh, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Christ in his manhood standing in the water with John the Baptist there baptizing him. And then the Spirit descending in the form of a dove. So this is an epiphany. This is also a, a theophany. 
So we see Christ's full deity revealed in his baptism. And then it's also an example of how baptism is a means of continuing to testify. So the church is told to go out and baptize. This is the Great Commission. And when we're baptized, we're making a testimony. We're proclaiming uh, not only that we believe in Christ, but, but who Christ is, that he is, uh, that Christ is God, that he is Lord, baptism being a sign of submission to him. Also worth keeping in mind that we're to baptize all nations. So uh, the Gentiles being baptized, all the nations being brought into the kingdom of Christ. And now the propers for evening prayer. Again, uh, the first lesson comes from Isaiah, this time Isaiah 49. So continuing to remind us and teach us how Christ is the great fulfillment of the prophecies to Israel, uh, showing us again that role of Isaiah as a sort of fifth gospel. And it's interesting that this is a proper selection, but also the daily office readings during this time of year uh, are also coming from Isaiah. So all throughout Advent, Christmas, and Epiphany, uh, we are enriched by the teachings of Isaiah. Isaiah 49, listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. So again, Gentiles, strangers, but now emphasis on the person of the Messiah, the servant of the Lord. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. So Christ, if we read this as being fulfilled in him, is the true Israel. He's the son of God. He's the, the arrow in the quiver in the hands of the giant, the mighty man. But in this case, of course, that's God the Father. Jesus is God's arrow in his quiver. He's the true Israel. He's the servant. And verse 5 tells us his job to bring Jacob back to him. And that Israel might be gathered to him. Christ is sent to reclaim the Jews, to bring them back to God because they had wandered. Christ is true Israel, and then he is for Israel. But then verse 6 says, I will make you as a light for the nations. So this is going to be read in Evensong. And the canticles of Evensong are the Magnificat and the Nunc Dimenis a light of revelation to the Gentiles, and glory for thy people Israel. This is going to connect here. Christ is a light to the nations and the one who brings back Israel to God. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, king shall see and arise. Princes shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. And so reading Isaiah 
back in the day, we might try to apply that to Israel itself. God has chosen them, so the kings of the earth will eventually bow before them. But in the light of the revelation of Christ, we see it's fulfilled in him. He ultimately is Israel, and you get to be Israel by being in Christ. All of the nations will come, and yes, kings will bow down. This is repeated several times throughout Isaiah 49, uh, verse 22. I will lift up my hand to the nations, raise my signal to the peoples. They shall bring your sons in their arms, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers, and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. So the leaders of the nations which have oppressed Israel will now come and bow down and worship. You've got to wait, and God will show this. Also interesting to me, uh, this idea of Jews and Gentiles being brought together, and then finally uh, the kings being brought in, it makes me think of the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. Uh, several times God says that he, Paul, is his chosen instrument and vessel to bear witness. But then God will say, uh, or Christ speaking indeed, says that Paul's going to bear witness to three groups of people, Jews and Gentiles and kings. Paul is going to be uh, one who manifests and testifies to these groups of people. We think of him rightly as one who uh, testifies to the Gentiles. He, he's the apostle to the Gentiles, after all. But his role before kings is very important. And in the book of Acts, he is going to be bearing witness to various kinds of kings, Felix and Festus and Agrippa, all lesser kings. But eventually, he's going to bear witness, he hopes, to Caesar himself. And in January, <laughs> there's going to be a special feast day about the conversion of St. Paul. That's going to come up on the 25th. So if we've been tracking with Epiphany, when we get to that day for Paul, this is also going to bring out these very familiar themes. It shows the interconnection of the days. That Paul is one who has a revelation of Christ, as we read in the uh, epistle proper. And he's going to there go for, uh, therefore go out and bear witness, and he's going to do it to Jews, Gentiles, and kings. I think it's also interesting, the conversion of St. Paul is something of a capstone of those martyrdom feasts after Christmas. What's the first one of those after all? St. Stephen. Paul was there when Stephen was martyred. But then Paul will be transformed by his own revelation of Christ, and he will then go out and be one who bears witness, and eventually is himself martyred for the faith. So Epiphany carrying on some Christmas themes, but then getting us ready also to think about Lent as we think about the suffering and death. 
And then finally, the uh, New Testament lesson for evening prayer, John 2, the wedding at Cana. Now, this narrative is going to reappear as a gospel proper uh, in a couple weeks, uh, the second week, I believe, uh, in Epiphany. So this is one that gets repeated. Uh, I think that means that there's different levels of appreciation here. It's more of a complementary passage. Uh, in a few weeks, it'll be the central passage. And this, too, is a revelation. It's the first of Jesus' miracles. So that's probably why it's connected. But also, it has to do with water. Remember, they're out of wine at the wedding, and so he transforms the water that is there into wine, the old stone jars full of water into new wine. So this is also a sanctifying and blessing of water, transforming of old into new, infusing the old with glory. And so the wedding at Cana is, uh, is a sign. People say, well, something special here about Jesus, this first of his miracles that he's performing. It's also a transformational sign from old into new and from water into wine. And so it's capping off these epiphany themes. And uh, it's also uh, sort of summarizing and bringing them to their goal because it's a wedding. And weddings are eschatological. That's ultimately where Jesus is headed for his great wedding in heaven, the marriage supper of the Lamb. So we're going from his birth to his baptism to the wedding, all of the various themes of messiahhood coming together here. This is epiphany. And the season will continue with these various themes of Christ's deity, people seeing it, seeing special things through his miracles, but also our need to continue to bear testimony that we might tell others. And ultimately, it's our goal, our hope, that as we know this message, that we and all nations, heaven and earth together, might behold the glory of Christ, his eternal Godhood, forever. Well, thanks for listening. This is, again, the BCP Propers. I'm your host, Stephen Wedgworth. We've discussed Epiphany for this episode. Next time, we'll get into the Epiphany season with the uh, Sunday, first Sunday after the Epiphany, reading uh, the Propers then, and we'll continue on in weeks to come. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, if you've enjoyed this episode, please check out the others. They should be online where all good podcasts are hosted, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and others. Uh, and tell others about it if you like it, uh, and get a copy of the Book of Common Prayer so that you can read the scriptures along with us, that we might grow together in seeing the glory of Christ and appreciating the fullness of his deity. Mm -hmm.